My notes say Revelation 29, 1 through 6. Since there aren't 29 chapters in Revelation, let's go with 20, 1 through 6. We'll be talking about the kingdom of God or the millennial reign of Christ. Have you ever been confronted with arguments of a skeptic or a non-believer? And it goes something like this. If God exists, why is there war? Why is there evil in the world? And why does mankind suffer? Why doesn't your God, your good God, just bring a stop to all evil? You Christians, you claim God is all-powerful, then He could destroy evil if He wanted to. So why doesn't your God stop evil? Those are good questions, by the way. And because God is not on their timetable, this skeptic, this unbeliever will come to a very bad decision or conclusion. And they come to the conclusion there is no God. Well, chapter 20 of Revelation answers these questions and many other questions. Know this, believers and non-believers, God will shortly, very shortly, deal a decisive blow to all of His enemies. But God has a plan. He has a way. He has a method in which He will do this. You can't rush God into action, nor can you delay Him. God is God. And in chapter 19 of Revelation, we have Jesus returning to earth in power, not as a babe in Bethlehem like He did 2,000 years ago, but He returns as a conquering Messiah. And he's on a white horse. In verses 15 and 21 of chapter 19, we see this sharp sword that goes out of the mouth of God, out of Jesus, to destroy those nations and rulers who have come against his people, Israel. The sharp sword is simply the spoken word of God. He simply says, It is done. And it is done. I often like to paraphrase what our Lord would probably say if He were me. <laughs> and I would say something like, Be dirt, you dust bag, and they are. But God isn't like that. And for that, you can be glad. But the Battle of Armageddon, it will go on for a short period of time. No one knows exactly how long, but we do know this. It ends quickly. Jesus arrives, and a sharp sword, His word goes out of His mouth, and the battle is over. All Jesus has to do is speak the word, and it's done. And then we have the beast and the false prophet. They are captured and cast into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And then we come to chapter 20, and we have Jesus 
in chapter 20 dealing with Satan ushering in his millennial age, his kingdom come, and then we have also the great white throne judgment. So let's read Revelation chapter 20 verses 1 through 6. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and the judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received a mark on their forehead or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. thousand years. That's a little little longer than one of our lifetimes. We have here one angel. He descends from heaven, and this angel has the key, the authority over the bottomless pit. This angel, he carries a great chain, and that chain is to bind Satan for a thousand years. Note, one angel an angel of God with complete authority over Satan. To me, that's a great example of the power structure in the spiritual realm. Satan has never been nor ever will be an equal opponent to God. One angel has complete authority over him. This angel, he will bind Satan, cast him into the bottomless pit, and for a thousand years, no deception, no temptation from the master deceiver. For a thousand years, no human being can use the excuse, the devil made me do it. No temptation from Satan for a thousand years years. When Jesus was in his ministry here on earth and his disciples, they went up to the area of the Gadarenes and there was a demon-possessed man there who had a legion of demons in him. And these demons spoke to Jesus and they begged him, do not send us into the abyss. Do not send us into the bottomless pit. In chapter 9, the same angel that has the power over Satan has opened the bottomless pit and smoke ascends, it arises like that of a great furnace. 
and it darkened the air and even darkened the sun. Now you, if you're anything like me, ever since I was a little guy, I've heard a lot of speculation about the thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, it's a favorite subject among Christians. It's something great to look forward to. And in the church, there are three views on the millennium. Let me just go through them real quickly. Post-millennialism. They believe that the church, you and I, will root out evil here in this world, and we, the church, will usher in the millennial reign of Christ. This belief is things will get better and better in our society until everybody recognizes that Christ rules. However, this view is becoming less and less popular as people see the world continuing to get more evil, to fight more wars, and the violence increases. Amillennialism. Their view is we are there. We're in the millennial reign right now. We're in the midst of this thousand-year reign of Christ today. Things are glorious all around us and how blessed we are to live in such an age of tranquility and peace. Isn't it good to know that everyone around us recognizes and accepts Christ and His kingdom? However, the last time I checked, there's still a few people out there who have not accepted Christ or His kingdom. For instance, the major religions of the world that aren't Christian. And so that view is not very popular or really is not accepted that much. Then we have premillennialism, which is uh, basically believes that the thousand-year reign of Christ is yet future. Needless to say, this is a view that the majority of the church holds. This view also happens to be what I consider scriptural. But the, this premillennial reign to begin, there's a few things that have to happen first. Satan must be bound and cast into the bottomless pit where he will not be allowed to deceive the nations, the peoples of the earth, until this thousand-year reign is finished. That sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? We know that the disciples, when they walked on the earth with Jesus, they had concerns about the kingdom age. It happened to be a popular subject among them. They would even argue among themselves as to who would be the greatest. Who would Jesus appoint or put in positions of power? Who would Jesus choose to be his leaders? And Jesus, on several occasions, he asked the disciples, what were you fellows arguing about on the road? And the disciples, of course, they're embarrassed. And they remain silent. And Jesus uh, would then teach them about his kingdom 
and how it was to become and who would rule and reign. No one can match, though, Zebedee's sons, James and John, who had their mother, Salome, approach Jesus on their behalf. They were clever. <laughs> uh, Mark's gospel tells us that they came to Jesus and they have a request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus doesn't fall into that trap, by the way. You know, he doesn't say, oh, okay, boys, whatever you want. You got me trapped here. I'll do it. No. And there's a word of advice there for us, too. Never say you will do a favor until you know what that favor entails. <laughs> That's just good words to live by. People will try to manipulate you. Children are very guilty of this. Dad... I want to ask a favor of you, but I don't want, I'm not going to tell you till you tell me you'll do it. <laughs> not going to fall into it. <laughs> you ask me the favor, then I'll let you know if I'm going to do it. But Jesus, he knew their motives, and to my surprise, Jesus does not rebuke them. But he simply asks, What do you want me to do for you? So let's read Matthew's account of this event. Matthew chapter 20, and we'll look at verses 20 through 28. You may want to turn there, you may not, but I'll read it. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? And they said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine. It's not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, that's the other ten disciples, they were greatly indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. We are very adept at being persuasive and knowing how to put pressure on others to get an answer that we want. Salome, <clears throat> the mother of James and John, puts pressure on Jesus, and her request is an extremely selfish request. 
she kneels down before Jesus. That's a position of humility. That's a position of worship. That's even a position of prayer. But her request is totally self-centered. Any request that is totally self-centered is rarely the will of God. Jesus answers their request and he answers it very kindly. And he simply says, you don't know what you ask. Salome, she is asking for her sons to have power and authority in God's kingdom and probably doesn't even understand for a moment what God's kingdom entails. She wants one son on the right hand. She wants the other son on the left. Now, I'm amazed at Jesus' patience with Salome and his disciples. Jesus could have said to her, and to James and John, your desires are totally selfish, and there's no way I will answer such a request. Now, I might have said something like that. And then he could have given them a scathing rebuke for the self-centeredness. But Jesus doesn't even pour it out. He doesn't even bring attention to their selfishness. He simply tells them, positions of power and authority are for those God the Father has prepared. What a kind answer. But note when the other ten disciples hear of James and John's selfish little scheme, they become indignant. <laughs> I think they're indignant because they didn't think of this scheme themselves. You know, I, I should have come up with that. Why didn't I think of that? Where's my mom, you know? Or maybe they're not even bold enough to ask. So they act hurt and wounded. They're indignant. And Jesus calls them to gather around him. And let me paraphrase here. And he says, you know the power and authority in the world. You know how the world flaunts and abuses their positions. And here's his words. Do not let this be so among you. You want to be great, my disciples? That's okay. Be a servant. Be a slave. And then Jesus, he will draw a complete opposite comparison and he will use himself as the example. I, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I wonder how the disciples received that. We're not told. But here's the question. Who among us, if we're completely honest, doesn't secretly want to be great in God's kingdom? Now that can be good or it can be bad or selfish. Why do we want to be great? I think we should work a little overtime 
be a godly person, wanting to be perceived as a godly person, our reputation probably meaning a little too much to us. It's a very difficult concept for any Christian to be a servant and a slave. We have we are in a military community. A lot of retired military around here. Many of you are either in the military or come out of the military. <laughs> and to embrace the servant attitude or mentality is very difficult in the military. Because from the day you enter the military, you learn quickly rank has its privileges. <laughs> no one has to tell you that. You see it all around you. In our ministry meetings here, and we do have ministry meetings, believe it or not, I've beat the drum of servanthood all the time. Because whenever you serve a person, you earn the right to speak into their life. God takes servants, He takes slaves, and He makes them compassionate leaders like unto Himself. The disciples, along with other followers, they gather with Jesus right before His ascension into heaven in Acts chapter 1. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Seems to be a popular subject with them. Jesus responds to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. And you've got to admit, if the disciples are nothing else, they are consistent. They want to know about this kingdom age. And they want to know what position where they will fit into Jesus' coming kingdom. So let me read you verse 4, 5, and 6 of our text again. Chapter 20 of Revelation. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgments and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, and had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark of their, on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him one thousand years. You have it said, you have it said again, and then you have it said one more time. And when Scripture repeats itself that many times, we should pay attention. Verse 4, they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. We, 
the servants, disciples of Christ, whom Jesus has exhorted, it shall not be so among you. You're not to be like the world, my Christian friends. Hopefully we have learned the servanthood lesson. Hopefully we have applied the servanthood style of life to our life. Because the servants are the ones who will rule and reign according to our attitude of servanthood with Christ. He's going to take slaves, he's going to take servants, and he's going to esteem them. Therefore, we would be well advised to learn the ways and the heart of our Lord Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. And then in verse 6, he says it again, same message. We have, as Christians, a glorious, wonderful future. One which death has no power over it. Think about that. Death will not stop what the Lord has wanted to do in our life. We just change the locations. We have a future that the disciples longed for. A future, a future that the disciples argued over. A future that James and John, along with their mother, tried to manipulate Jesus into giving them. A future that any prudent Christian should carefully consider and base their life around it. Any rational Christian would gladly serve Christ just for the millennial reign that he promises us. I know I would. Who wouldn't serve a lifetime now for a thousand years to rule and reign with Christ. A thousand years is a long time, by the way. But here, here's the great reward. And we would be amiss if we didn't see this. Not to rule and reign with Christ, that is a side benefit. The disciples, I don't know if they ever got it while they walked with Jesus. But by being a servant... We get to be like Christ. You get to be like Christ. One of the great examples that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples is when he washed their feet. In John 13, verses 14 through 17, I'll read it to you. He has just washed their feet. And he says, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you 
if you do them. Recently, um, there was a survey done where they asked college graduates, what do you desire from life? To the surprise of the person uh, taking this poll, very few of the college graduates desired riches. That wasn't the top of their list. The majority of the graduates simply wanted to live a happy, fulfilling life. So my Christian friends, us, the enlightened disciples of Jesus, do you want to be happy? I'll sign up for that. Then understand the great principle of serving. Get that principle down pat and get it in the noggin. It would be easy if that was all that was required. Now, I think we understand the principle of serving. I really do. I understand it's just being a servant that's difficult. But get the principle out of your mind and get it into practice. You got to do it. Happy are you if you do these things. It's not enough to know that serving is God's will for you. He says you got to do it. You got to put a little shoe leather to it. You got to practice it. You got to give Nike credit. They picked up on this principle when they had their little slogan, just do it. Who couldn't think of it? We all can think of it. You know, it's been said that Christianity today is played out in the mind and not practiced. And I, I, I sure understand the person that said that. We have to be a servant, not just understand it. We have to do it. May the Lord help us. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, I would just pray that by your Spirit, you would work on our hearts. Lord, you give us a great example of yourself being a servant. And Lord, that is a great principle for us to have in our minds and in our hearts. But, Lord, we want to be found serving. We don't want to just be talking about it. So, Lord, as we contemplate ways to serve you, I pray that by your Spirit you would reveal those ways to us. Show us how we can serve one another. And you've told us if we serve one another, we're serving you. So, Lord, let us, right here, this group, be a group of servants. It's the least we can do, Lord. So let us apply that to our lives and be doing it. We pray for this power by your Spirit to be a servant, to be a slave. We ask it in your name, Jesus.
Amen.